Join with me in the scripture reading this morning, which comes out of Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And then we'll switch over to Psalm 51, 10 through 12. So, beginning with Matthew 5, 1 through, uh, 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we shift over to Psalm 51, 10 through 12, it says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I'd like to flip back to the Beatitudes again, to Matthew 5, verse 8, and we're going to concentrate on this this morning. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Welcome, everyone. I just wanted to take the, this moment to introduce our speaker to you today. He's a friend I've come to appreciate and respect uh, because he really lives out his faith with integrity. Uh, he came to know Jesus as an adult, and 25 years ago, he had a heart for the youth and children in his city, and so he started a uh, ministry to these children uh, in his parents' Taekwondo studio. And since then, it's grown into this organization called Little Lights, which employs 14 full-time staff, 40 part-time staff, and has reached tons and tons of uh, children and families in the neighborhood. They have specific ministries in public housing here in, on the Hill and in Southeast. And uh, the average income for these households is between eleven dollars and $14,000 a year. So it's definitely a very uh, needed and necessary part of uh, uh, needy population. And so they've committed themselves to serving, to after-school programs, family counseling, and also a uh, landscaping business that employs eight uh, full-time staff doing landscaping here in this city. Uh, Steve and his wife Mary, who also serves at uh, Little Lights, they have two children, uh, teenage children who uh, go to school here in DC, and they live in Southeast Anacostia, in, in Anacostia committed to living and serving those they care about, as God calls them. So let's welcome Steve as he shares God's word with us this morning. Thanks, Steve. It's good to be here with you on this unusual <laughs> set of circumstances. Um, obviously, these are very tumultuous, um, unprecedented times, and I'm thinking constantly about our children and families who the school got canceled in D.C., and thinking about food insecurity for them in the, in the coming days and probably weeks. And so it's something I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about and praying about um, 
But the Beatitudes are, have been so comforting as I've even been preparing uh, for today. So the Beatitudes are parallel, I think, to the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. So the uh, Ten Commandments were the commandments for the nation of Israel to sort of be God's representatives as a nation about how to live in community as a nation. Um, and you know, God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, and Jesus gave his disciples the Beatitudes, really as um, a guide of how to live as citizens of this thing called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, that these are, these are markers, these are uh, the ways that people who have been born into this new kingdom of God should live like, and, and it's a teaching about how to live our lives as representatives of the kingdom of heaven. Go to the next slide. I'll read it. It says, Theologians Stassen and Gushi collected evidence from early church documents to show that for the first 300 years or so after Christ, the Beatitudes was the single most quoted piece of scripture evoked for teaching, discipline, or doctrine in the church. The church fathers regarded the Beatitudes as the master key to Christian discipleship. So the early church really focused in on the Beatitudes as essential. This was like discipleship 101. Like this is, they went back to it over and over again to teach new disciples and teach disciples like this is your, this is the way you're taught to live as Christians here on this earth, that it really was the master key to discipleship. And so it's something we want to keep meditating on. I mean, and th now, I mean, one positive thing with all the sadness happening with hearing about the deaths and, and the illnesses and people uh, being admitted to hospitals, with all the sadness that's happening, I think one benefit is that now the time, kind of a sense of time is shifted. A lot of us now may have more time in solitude to, to meditate on teachings of Scripture. And, and I think Beatitudes is a wonderful passage to focus in on during this time that we may have some extra time for meditation. Here are the next slide. Share a little bit of my story because I feel like the Beatitudes needs to be not just like nice teaching, not just something we put on like a poster or a, even a bumper sticker or some nice thing they put on a Hallmark card. I really think the Beatitudes are meant to be like an explosion, like a bomb just dropping in on your life. That it's supposed to revel, it's, it's supposed to just totally turn your entire life upside down. And that's, you know, what happened to me. That's how, you know, what Andrew mentioned, I became a Christian after, as an adult. And the gospel and the, and the love of Jesus and the, the teachings of Jesus really became like a, a, a a revolutionary thing in my life. It really changed the trajectory of my life completely. I was a very devout atheist in college, didn't believe in the existence of God, but I was kind of depressed in college. I wasn't a very joyful person, but I got through most of my classes, got pretty good grades, had a very active social life, but I wasn't a very joyful person. I didn't really have a deep sense of hope for the future, but you wouldn't have known it if you had met me. I was you know, generally easygoing, very sociable, and I remember I moved back to the D.C. area after college, and I lived with my best friends from college. 
And one of my friends, you know, he's a pretty affluent guy. He got an Alfa Romeo convertible for his college graduation. You know, he was pretty well off. And I was living with him, and he was somebody who's really into the stock market. And then, you know, one day he went on vacation. He went on a European vacation and came back and told me he didn't care about the stock market anymore. Like, literally overnight. And I was like, what happened? And he didn't have a, a spiritual conversion. He tried this drug called ecstasy. And he thought, he thought this was the greatest thing ever invented. And so he convinced me to try it, and we started doing this drug regularly. And I agreed with him. I thought this was the answer. This is the answer that I've been looking for. Because um, it took my pain away for that period of time. It gave me a sense of bliss for a period of time. And we, we were doing this regularly. A few months in, I had an incredibly horrible experience on it where I experienced tremendous amount of terror and fear. I mean, it was spiritual warfare in a very intense level. You know, I'm an atheist, so I'm not supposed to believe in supernatural things, but what I was experiencing really felt supernatural because it was such fear and terror beyond anything I could ever imagine. And it wasn't wearing off. After a few days, a few weeks, that fear was not wearing off. So it was beyond just a chemical thing. And I, it was an existential crisis. I didn't know where to turn. And a book that helped me go in the right direction was a book called The Road Less Traveled. It was a bestseller in the late 80s and early 90s, for those of you who can remember back that far. And I remember the first sentence of the book got my attention, and it was just three words, life is difficult. And it grabbed my attention, as, and I was 24 at the time, because I think growing up in America, if you're, especially if you're young and American, you're sort of taught that life's supposed to be easy. Life's supposed to be kind of like one high after another, one success, you know, achieving the American dream. And, but what I was going through was more difficult than anything I could have ever even imagined. And the book, um, he was written by a psychologist, ultimately says that the fundamental issue and what causes mental health problems is when you don't feel valuable as a person at the deepest part of yourself. That the lack of that feeling of being valuable is, is at, the, at the center of mental health issues. And as I was reading the book, I realized this was my existential problem. It wasn't that I didn't have the right job or the right girlfriend or spouse or more money. My existential problem was that I did not feel valuable as a person, that I had lots of feelings of worthlessness. And uh, the, I kept reading the book, and the book also talked about how the answer to mental health issues is love. The love and that feeling of being valuable is essential to mental health. And he also notes in his books that the root word of holiness and holy is the same as health and whole that it's all derived from the same root word. And that my lack of health was centered on my lack of really understanding my value and under, not feeling truly unconditionally loved. So I started doing what the book recommended to do. I went to see a therapist. <laughs> I went to see a therapist and tried to practice what the book taught me to do, taught, which was learn how to be vulnerable. Learn how to be transparent. Learn how to be authentic. So it was at the therapist's office that I mustered up enough courage to tell another human being that I was lonely, 
that I was scared, that I was exhausted. And a lot of people may be feeling that right now. I mean, one thing we're experiencing right now is probably a collective sense of vulnerability in ways that we probably couldn't have even imagined a couple of weeks ago. But spiritually, there's an opportunity there when people are feeling vulnerable because the things that we we found security in no longer work as well or maybe no longer work at all. And there's maybe opportunity spiritually to minister to people because the things that they thought they were secure in, maybe they're losing that, that sense of security. So at the therapist's office, I try to learn transparency and vulnerability. And I remember sharing with my sister in New Year's Eve of 94 how I was feeling depressed and losing the will to live. I was that tired and exhausted and scared. And she didn't say a single word. She just embraced me physically, but she did it with such tenderness that I just broke down weeping uncontrollably for 30 straight minutes, just bawling my eyes out for 30 straight minutes in her arms, really like a little child. I felt like a little kid. I was 24 at the time. All these emotions came out, tears came out, and it was the first time I really experienced a deep level of compassion and empathy and grace for the first time. And my heart really opened to what compassion was. And my life was never the same after that. It really was. That was like the first explosion that I was talking about. And I realized that compassion and love are the most important things in life. And I think when times like this, when we're feeling more vulnerable, that becomes more real. Because when we're feeling vulnerable, we realize our, our 401k is not enough to sustain a sense of security, uh, our, or our bank account, or even our nice house, or even a nice job is not enough to give us that sense of security. And the Bible teaches that love, God is love, that we need to find our sense of security in the love of Christ. And after that experience, one thing I realized, one, I realized I was loved, that there was understanding, but I also began to see that there was so much suffering in the world, that there was so much hurt and brokenness in the world that, that needed compassion, and that compassion and love were really the most important things in life. And the way I became a Christian was by reading a book called World Religions, ironically, I read about the other major religions, and the last chapter was on Christianity. And I started reading about the life of Jesus. And I was blown away. I was an atheist who had gone through a heart change, but I was blown away by the radical love of Jesus. And what differentiated for me as an atheist, Jesus from all the other major religions, religious leaders, and Christianity from all the other major religions, was the radical compassion of Jesus Christ, especially among the marginalized, the vulnerable, and the weak, the poor, the lepers, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, whoever were the marginal, rejected people of that society, Jesus gave dignity to and also showed compassion to and ultimately gave his life for. And again, that was another explosion in my life recognizing who Jesus was. And I just remember repenting of my selfishness, recognizing at that point that I had lived my whole life basically for myself and my own desires. And here was this Jesus person 
radically sacrificing, radically serving, radically loving even the rejects of society. And I was just blown away. And I, I remember repenting and saying, this is the guy I'm supposed to follow. And for me, it was about not becoming, uh, just believing doctrine, but like, I need to live like Jesus did, radically compassionate, radically loving. You go to the next slide. The Bible talks about the heart. And in our contemporary society, we might think about the heart as something like romantic or just feelings about things, but that's not how the Bible sees the heart. It's much, much deeper. The heart in Scripture is not only where our emotions lie, but also our deepest motives, desires, values, and morals. It's like our being. It's like the center of who we are. What drives us? What our priorities are? What are our values, right? And it's indicated on our actions. Like we can know all the doctrine, but the way we prioritize things in our lives really show where our heart is, right? And that's what the scripture is telling us, you know, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That God calls us to, to sanctify, purify our hearts and our motives and our desires that um, it would be toward God so that we can see God. But this is obviously, like Andrew was saying, it's very countercultural, right? If you ask the average person in America, like, what do you, what do you want? But what do you desire? People want to be rich. People might just say, generally, I want to be happy. But almost nobody's going to say, I really want to be pure in heart. Like, you'd probably get laughed at if you went to work and people, you know, you know, you told them, like, I really desire to be pure in heart. Like, people would laugh. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, it sounds so, like, ridiculous almost to say, like, I desire purity of heart. But that's exactly what scripture tells us that we should desire, and it's a key to a truly joyful, happy, blessed, full, meaningful life, is a purity of heart. Go to the next slide. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. It's such a thing that we need to value and protect and guard and care for. Go to the next slide. But Jeremiah 17, 9, 10 uh, gives us some bad news about the heart. That it's something that's valuable and something we need to guard and, and, and take care of. But it also says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind and reward each person according to their conduct according to what their deeds deserve. We also have to realize that this is part of being poor in heart, is recognizing how deceitful our own hearts are. And one, I mean, the one thing you know you're, you're moving in the right direction of purity of heart is to realize you're not actually pure in heart, <laughs> right? The more we understand how impure our hearts are is a sign that we're actually becoming more pure in heart. Because we begin to see how selfish we are, how self-centered we can be, um, how self-absorbed we can be, and how fearful we can become. Our heart is deceitful. We can't just trust it. We have to constantly ask God, really on a daily basis, to examine our hearts, even our motives. The next slide. And, you know, one Christian word that talks about this 
cleansing of the heart, a purity, uh, purifying the heart, is the word sanctification. And the Westminster uh, uh, Shorter Catechism says, Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. The purity is about dying into our selfish, destructive desires, but then living to greater righteousness and compassion and mercy, all the things that the Beatitudes talked about. But we have to recognize the areas that were self-centered and, and ask God to examine it and purify it and recognizing that this is, the heart is deceitful. This is our natural state, that we're prone to uh, self-centeredness and selfishness. You can go to the next slide. To be pure in heart is to be single-minded and undivided. It means to have smashed all the idols in the heart. I mean, to have an undivided heart. Like, that's, that's hard. I mean, that's a process. Because there's so much that I personally desire for myself that isn't necessarily good for me or good for my family or good, good for others that, that is so hard to die to. And so it's an every single day process. Like the Beatitudes has to be a daily practice because that self, the self-centeredness is so embedded into our hearts and it's such a process of seeing it and repenting of it. It's a daily thing. It's a daily explosion, like I said, that we need of Jesus' teaching to, to free us from the bondage of our sins and the, uh, and the bondage of idols that we have. Go to the next slide. James 4.8 says, in the NIV, it says, Come near to God and he will come near to you. And I like this part. Wash your hands, you sinners, pure, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Right? It's a rebuke of double-minded, like having kind of one foot in the world and, and wanting worldly things and then wanting uh, God at the same time. New Living Translation puts it this way. Come close to God and God come, will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. That are, we have dual loyalties, and that is not the heart that God wants for us, as hard as it is. And I think, it, you know, it, just like we, I mean, I love how we're getting all uh, constant reminders to wash our hands, right? Every time you wash your hands, ask God to search your heart, <laughs> that you're washing your hands and your heart at the same time, <laughs> right? That... That we, that's something we have to do. You can't just say, I washed my hand last week, so I'm kind of done for a while, <laughs> right? I hope we don't do that. We need to wash our hands multiple times a day and, and, and wash our hearts multiple times. We have to ask constantly to God to search our hearts, to purify our hearts, to be freed from this bondage of, of selfishness and self-centeredness. And Tim Keller puts it this way. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. 
An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll know my life has meaning, then I know I'll have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. So a lot of us put an incredible amount of energy and stress and time and uh, you know, constant thought worrying about our career. Because that's where we think we're going to get our identity. That's where I get my value. This is how everyone around me is going to judge me based on what I do for a living and how much money that I make. That's an idol. When you think you're going to find your identity and worth, self-worth, on that thing that's not God. And that's why I think it's a good time in some ways to minister to people, to get people to try to think about spiritual things, because people are realizing, probably maybe some for the first time, that their career can't give them the security, no matter how good of a career that they have, that something like what's happening with a pandemic will not provide a career, will not provide that full sense of security. Only God can do that. Go to the next slide. But it's not, in the purity of heart and seeing God is not just about our, only our relationship with God. It's also about seeing the, the suffering and the beauty in others. Mark 12, 30 to 31 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. That loving God and that purity of heart toward God is related to the command to, to love our neighbors. Go to the next slide. And to see God is to also see the beauty and the suffering of our neighbors, especially those in need. I mean, and right now, you have those who are in economic need, like people in public housing, but especially those who are seniors right now feel the most vulnerable, maybe some feel the most isolated. This is an opportunity to minister and see the vulnerability of our seniors and reach out to them and try to comfort them with the love of Christ. And one thing with my own conversion that I saw is after God gave that compassion to me, I saw the beauty among my low-income neighbors where my parents owned a business and I, in a way that I'd never, ever seen before. That, that, compa- that compassion that I received from God resulted in compassion to those around me, especially those in need. Go to the next slide. There you go. The early church went through much more tumultuous times than what we're experiencing. But the early church was able to grow and thrive and really exploded into the world and into the Roman Empire. Martin Luther King Jr., and the civil rights movement for me is one of the recent times in church history that in some ways resembled what the early church was like. People who really dedicated themselves to the faith, to the teachings of Christ, to prayer, to bring about incredible social change for for justice and compassion in the world. And Martin Luther King Jr. said this. It says, there was a time when the church was was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed 
In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. That a thermostat can change things, can change the environment, change the atmosphere. And that's what the civil rights movement did. It is a really centered in the black church. And that's what the early church did. Even though they were young, it was a young church, but it helped to change that society in ways that is almost incomprehensible. Because what they did, they grasped, grasped the teachings of Jesus like the Beatitudes. They understand the revolutionary aspects of the Beatitudes. And if we, if we as Christians actually lived the Beatitudes and not just studied the Beatitudes, actually lived it out, we would change society. That Jesus was not about just helping us to feel good at an individual level and feeling some peace when we're going through hard times or feeling a little bit more joyful or get, you know, have better moods. Not only did he want to transform us personally, he wanted to use us to usher in the kingdom of God on earth, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom on earth through actions and, and words, to be that thermostat. And that's what the early church did. And I'll give you this example. The plague, uh, if you go to the next slide, the plague of Cyprian, and this was 2051 to 2066 AD, and there were other plagues and, and pandemics besides this, but this was one of the pandemics, plague of Cyprian, spread from Africa throughout the known world. It was transmitted person to person by physical contact and by touching or using clothing and items infected by the sick. Half of the people who encountered the disease died. So imagine what was happening, what society must have been like at that time. During each pandemic, government officials and the wealthy fled the cities for the countryside to escape contact with those infected, who were infected. The Christian community remained behind, transforming themselves into a great force of caretakers. And continuing, on Easter Sunday in 2260 AD, Bishop Dionysius of Corinth praised the efforts of the Christians, many of whom who died while caring for others. He said, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with a disease drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Like these Christians are not famous, right? We don't know the names of these martyrs, people who died caring for the neediest people in this life, who showed courage and compassion in the face of trials and, and, and hardship. We don't know their names. We will never, you know, they'll never be famous. But because they lived out the Beatitudes, they changed the world. They changed the, and they were witness to the gospel of the kingdom of God. These were nobodies, but because they held on and committed to the teachings of Christ and teachings of the Beatitudes, they were able to change society. 
And it says, the foremost, foremost expert on the early history of hospitals, Gary Ferngren, PhD, wrote, the hospital was in origin and conception a distinctively Christian institution rooted in Christian concepts of charity and philanthropy. There were no pre-Christian institutions in the ancient world that served the purpose that Christian hospitals were created to serve. None of the provisions for healthcare in classic classical times resembled hospitals as they developed in the late fourth century. You know, many that were, who were, that were created by women at that time. In their ingenuity and compassion, they created a healthcare system. I mean, these were the nobodies of that society when the government had abandoned its people. Like, that's how courageous, these were people living out the beat. That's how powerful the Beatitudes are when people truly, truly commit to it. And we are blessed with the, the, even today, with the service that they provided to creating the first hospitals, healthcare systems that, you know, now we need help with, and Christians can be a part of that. And so this is not an encouragement to start doing random health care on your neighbors, right? <laughs> Obviously, that's not the best for them, right? Like, we, we should avoid social but we should check in on our neighbors, call them. You know, wearing gloves, maybe deliver groceries for seniors, right? Uh, helping those most in need, uh, but recognizing how powerful the Beatitudes can be when Christians commit to it. Because blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let's pray. Go to the next slide. And I'm going to pray, uh, pray out these slides um, as we close. It says, Cleanse our hearts, O God, that we may see you more clearly and intimately. Liberate us from the bondage of sin, addiction, and idolatry that we may experience your freedom and joy with an undivided heart. Renew our broken hearts that even as we more clearly see the suffering and pain around us in our own city, our nation, and our world, we will be free to respond in sacrificial service and joy while rejoicing in the kingdom to come that will last forevermore. Amen.